You're listening to episode 44 of the Vine Podcast. Ever wonder if you could make small changes to make a bigger impact with your website? In today's episode, I'm sharing the most common mistakes I see food bloggers making with their website and how you can easily fix some of those mistakes. You love the time you get to spend creating content on your blog and connecting with your audience, but building a brand and working on your website, that's where it can feel overwhelming. With all of the lists out there of everything that you should do, sometimes you just feel like giving up. But friends, there's a better way. When you spend time strategically thinking about your blog, you'll discover what is essential to build a successful and sustainable business and what's not. I'm your host, Madison Weatherill, a WordPress web designer and branding strategist for food bloggers. I'm here to help you think strategically about the brand you're building, connect with your ideal audience, and ultimately convert them into raving fans, the ones who actually make your recipes, interact with you, and make this whole food blogging journey worth it. It's time to design a business you love and remember why you started a blog in the first place. Hello, my friends. I am so glad that you are tuning in today, and I just want to start today's episode like I start most episodes with just a quick introduction and welcome to the podcast. If you have never listened to the Vine podcast before, I'm so happy that you are here. Honestly, I would love to know how you found the podcast. That is something that I have been curious about and have just wondered how people find the show and what you like about it. So if you're new to the podcast and you're feeling brave and want to reach out, please reach out to me either on Instagram at Grace and Vine, or you can email me. I would just love to know how you found the podcast and what you are enjoying. If you are a new listener or a regular listener, I always love when you guys share the podcast on Instagram. It helps other people to know that the show exists and to understand what you like about it. And it also just helps me to know that the episodes are resonating with you and that you are learning something from them. So I really love when you guys do that and you tag me over at Grace and Vine. Now, if you are new here, I just want to introduce myself really quickly in case you are like me and you skip past that pre-recorded introduction, which I definitely do on podcasts that I find or listen to regularly. So my name is Madison Weatherill and I am a web designer specifically for food bloggers. My business, Grace and Vine Studios, has been around for about the last five years and over the last year to 18 months, I have specifically been focusing on my business serving food bloggers. That is why I have this podcast and it's really been such a an interesting experience to officially niche into working with food bloggers, even though I've worked with food bloggers all along. That is probably a story for a different day. And today I'm really excited to jump into this topic of the website mistakes you might be making. Now, I don't typically love to paint a negative picture when I have a podcast episode or a blog post that I'm writing. But in this case, this really comes down to relatively simple things that you might be able to fix or change on your blog. Some of them are going to be a little bit more complex, but overall, I hope that these mistakes are things that you can either easily tackle or put on your list to tackle in the near future. I hadn't really planned on doing this episode right away, but when I was doing some polls on Instagram the other day, my audience really wanted me to cover this topic, more so than some of the other topics that I had in mind, and so I decided to move this episode up in the line, and as I started outlining it and kind of getting some of my thoughts ready, I was actually really excited to cover this episode because, to be honest, there are a lot of things that come up in the food blogging world that you should or shouldn't do, and 
Sometimes there's not a lot of explanation about why or why not you should do something. And so I'm excited to dive into this episode and hopefully really explain some of these things that maybe you've heard you shouldn't do or you should do. And I hope that it will give you some explanation as to why and I'll kind of give you some of the reasoning behind it so that you can make better and strategic decisions for your blog and not just blindly follow what you hear other people teaching. So let's dive into these common website mistakes that I see. These are going to come from examples that I've seen of past clients coming up, people asking questions, and just things that I've observed being in this industry for over five years now. So I have 10 on my list, but we will see how many come up. I may ad lib a little bit in this episode just because there are some things that might come up as I'm explaining different topics. But for now, there are 10 on my list and we will see how well I can stick to that list. Mistake number one that I see people making with their websites is not something that you're going to be able to see on the front end of somebody's website, but it's going to be something on the back end, and that is not updating plugins. If you have been a listener of this podcast, you have heard me talk about this before, but I'm going to talk about it again because I think that you cannot be reminded enough that updating your plugins is super important. I think it was about last summer I had a previous client reach out to me saying that her site had been hacked and was completely gone. Luckily, her site wasn't actually gone. We were able to recover it, but we ended up figuring out that the reason her site got hacked was because she had a plugin that had not been updated and had some sort of security vulnerability within it. So not updating your plugins is not just something that is going to annoy you when you see that little bubble with the number, if that is something that bothers you. And it's not just something that's going to annoy me as a designer coming into your site to fix things. It is something that could actually be a mistake that could ruin your blog forever. That sounds so dramatic when I say it out loud, but to be honest, that does happen. What basically happens when you have a plugin that needs an update is that there are certain vulnerabilities within the plugin that need to be fixed. That's why an update comes out, whether it's something isn't working right, whether they added a new feature, there's something going on within the plugin that needs to be brought up to date. Hackers can see what those updates are, and then they can use that as sort of a backdoor into your website in order to take it down. Now, I know if you are thinking why in the world would someone want to do that? It's something that's kind of hard to understand, but we don't really need to know why someone would want to do that. All we need to know is that this happens and it's really important to keep those plugins up to date. Now, with that being said, that is going to lead me into the second mistake that I see or experience when I'm working with people, and that is not having backups for your site. What is going to happen if you go and update a plugin and all of a sudden it completely wipes out your site? You get that white screen death and there's nothing that you can do to access the back end of your site. Most of the time you can reach out to your hosting company if they are a good hosting company and they will be able to help you fix that. But just in case, you should always have backups of your site. Now, it is great to have backups through your hosting company themselves, but it's also good to have a backup that is not a part of your host. The reason for that is if, heaven forbid, your hosting company decides to shut their doors tomorrow and can't give you any of your files again, you want to make sure that you have your files. Now, again, I know that is something that sounds like it's so outlandish, it could never happen, but it could happen. And you have spent years, hours, months, days working on your content for your site. And I wouldn't even want to see the heartache that would come from losing it all. So in case you are not doing backups with your blog, I would recommend checking out these companies and figuring out which one would work best for you. The one that I use for most of my clients is Manage WP. And this is a really great 
platform if you are managing multiple sites. So for me, having a maintenance package where I run updates for clients, this is a great program so that I can see everybody on one dashboard and I can make updates to everyone's site right on that dashboard rather than logging into multiple sites. The other two that I have experience with or know someone who uses are Updraft Plus and Backup Buddy. So again, this should be something that you are doing apart from the backups that your host hopefully has for you. And it's just a good idea to have two copies of it just in case. Usually these companies are super affordable to have these backups. Some of them will do a cloud backup and others do something like a Dropbox backup. So there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing this, but the moral of the story is that you should have backups for your site. The next mistake that I see people making and that ends up bringing people to me in sort of a panic to figure the situation out is using a website or hosting platform other than self-hosted WordPress. Now, I know for a lot of people, this is just kind of common knowledge. This is what you start with when you start a blog, especially if you're starting to start a blog for monetary purposes or you know that this is something that you want to grow and have be a big part of your life, maybe even part of your income. But for a lot of people, they start on sites like Squarespace or Blogger or even Wix. And the reason that this is really a problem is WordPress is the industry standard for a reason. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I could go into that in a separate episode, but I think it's important to recognize if the industry is doing something and you kind of go another course, you're probably going to be missing out on certain things and certain features by going a different direction. Now, places like Free WordPress and Blogger or even Squarespace and Wix do not let you have full ownership and control of your content. That is the biggest issue when I talk about these different platforms. But the other big issue is that you are really limited in the plugins, the SEO benefits, and all of the other things that food bloggers really need, like recipe cards, when you use another platform besides self-hosted WordPress. Now, if you are just getting started with blogging and you're not really sure if this is going to turn into anything that you're going to benefit from or really going to be a huge part of your life. If you have to choose a free platform or something other than self-hosted WordPress, I would choose WordPress.com simply because it's going to be really easy to convert that into a self-hosted WordPress website down the road. But even if you aren't planning on making this a business right now, or it's not something that you are really trying to make money from, getting started on self-hosted WordPress is very inexpensive and it's going to save you heartache and an investment down the road if you have to hire someone like me to help you migrate your site down the road. Now, Squarespace is one that people love to get started with because it's super easy to use. It's really friendly for the people who are not designers to design their sites and make them look beautiful. But the biggest downfall to Squarespace is that you don't have the ability to use plugins. And I can't tell you how many times people have come to me or have told me that they switched to WordPress down the road and it is such a pain to have to do that later on. So if you are a brand new blogger or even if you have, you know, 50 to 100 blog posts, really take a look at the different platforms that you can use and figure out if moving to WordPress now is the best choice for you. Because the longer you wait, the more difficult it's going to be because a lot of these migrations from other sites other than self-hosted WordPress are going to be a manual migration that you have to do. It's not something that you can really automate. And so it just gets to be more of a headache down the road the more content that you have. Mistake number four that I see is using a recipe card that is tied to your theme. Now, this is not something I've actually seen very often, but it is something that can be a huge pain to deal with. There are apparently some recipe cards that are directly tied within your theme, and 
specifically this is I think a feature that I've only seen with the sprout and spoon theme. Now you can use a different recipe card with that theme but I know it's something that kind of comes out of the box to use their recipe card and there's a few reasons that this is a problem. The first is that if you ever change themes, you will no longer have your recipe cards. Now, people change themes a lot, and Sprout and Spoon specifically is not a Genesis-based theme, and so a lot of people come to me wanting to change from that theme to a Genesis child theme. And so when that happens, if you're using the Sprout and Spoon recipe card, or again, any recipe card that is tied within your theme itself, you are out of that content if you change themes, which is obviously something that would not be good. And so starting with a recipe card plugin that is not a part of your theme will make you be able to change themes without having to worry about that down the road. You can easily change your theme to a better theme, a custom site, all of those kinds of things without having to worry about losing your recipe content. Right along with that, number five is not using a good recipe card. So when I say a good recipe card, what I am talking about is a recipe card that has built-in schema for Google. Now I'm probably gonna do a whole separate episode maybe next week on recipe cards and which ones to use and the differences between some of the most common ones, but just know that if you're using a recipe card that is not one of the commonly used ones, again, there's probably a reason that people aren't using it. And Most of the recipe cards are going to be very comparable in terms of their features, at least the ones that are the most commonly recommended in Facebook groups and just in the food blogging world in general. Number six is using multiple recipe cards. Now I say this and it is something that I am honestly guilty of on my own blog. It's something that I was testing out using a different recipe card to see how I liked it and to see if I had any different results in terms of SEO. And so now I have probably 10 or 20 posts that are using the create recipe card and I have the rest of my posts that are using the tasty recipe card. So take a lesson from me and if you are using multiple recipe cards, it's really important to switch over to one. This is not only just because it makes things more simple for you, but it also is going to eliminate some headache down the road if you need to make updates to something or a plugin goes out of date. You at least have everything in one recipe card plugin and you don't have to worry about any changes that will come from another one. With the final four mistakes that I see people making, I'm going to shift more into the content itself rather than some of these more tech side of things. But I wanted to mention that if you haven't downloaded my DIY website audit checklist, you should definitely download that and take a look and make sure that you are running your website at tip top shape. This audit is really going to help you make sure that you don't have things that are just broken or missing or just things that most of the time you don't really see but are potential problems that your site could have. I will add a link to that website checklist in my show notes and also on the blog post, but you can also go to thevinepodcast.com slash 004 download or go ahead and check out episode four of the podcast where I walk you through that specific checklist. But just wanted to mention that because it's a really great way to have me help you walk through these different parts of your website and make sure that they are all running into top shape. So as we move into the last four, like I said, they're going to be more content specific. So things like your writing or different action spots on your website that may not be converting very well. So mistake number seven that I see people making is not having a clear call to action on their website. Now, something that's interesting is I used to have a question on my intake form for when people were reaching out to learn about working with me on custom website design. And the thing I asked was, what is the number one action you want someone to take on your website? 
And the interesting thing was that food bloggers tend to think that it's just make the recipe. But to be honest, I don't think that that is the call to action that you really want someone to do on your website. When they land on your website, they're landing on a single blog post and they're going to probably be making the recipe. So that part is more easy than getting them to do something else. So when we think about call to action for your website, My personal opinion is that your call to action should be to sign up for your email list. Your email list is super important, and if you haven't listened to the episode that I interviewed Liz Falsigno about email marketing, definitely go back and check that one out. But I really believe that having your biggest call to action on your website be your email list and getting someone to subscribe is really going to benefit your website in the long term, and it's going to help you build that loyal audience that you want to build. But instead, what I find a lot of people doing is really not giving someone an action that they should take or really making it clear. Now, the other call to action that you might have on your website is going to be less of like a button that you would have on your website. And it's more of something that you want people to do. And that is to browse more content. But when you think about that, if your goal is to have someone browse more content, you need to make sure that you are giving them a way to do that. The thing with this is we are all so much more comfortable with navigating a website and specifically a food blog than the average population is. We spend hours upon hours on our own sites and on other food blogger sites and we like to use those sites in a completely different way than the average person would. Someone who is not a food blogger is not going to know how to find a recipe index or browse around content or use a category link to dive into more posts. So we really need to make it obvious and easy for our readers to figure out what we want them to do next. I talked about this in the recipe index episode that I had a while back and even in the recent episode about your about page that I so often see people designing pages on their website, but not linking to them anywhere. And the thing is, if you don't tell people how to get to the page, they're not going to find it. Mistake number nine that I see is people not optimizing their category pages. Now, this is not only something that is beneficial for SEO purposes, but it is also beneficial for your reader. If you have your categories linked on your navigation menu or even on your homepage, it's really important that that category page is actually useful for people to dive into. If you go to a category page like dinner recipes and all you see are a bunch of squares with photos and a blog post name, that really isn't going to help me understand anything about this category. Now, it might be easy to think, well, it's just dinner. That is an easy thing to understand, but there is something unique about the way that you do dinner versus another blog. So it's really important to explain that on this page and help your readers to figure out what dinner means to you. Or there are sometimes more obscure categories that people use that you might need to explain, and it's really just a great real estate spot to be able to break down what this content is going to look like. And it's also a great place to link to relevant or popular content within that category. Again, this has SEO benefits as well as benefits for your readers, but it is really just an easy way to make this page useful for your audience. So often I see people sort of blindly linking to pages or posts from their website and there really isn't a lot of value for their readers. And so using these category pages more strategically and really optimizing them is going to provide a lot more benefit to your readers. And like I said, it's also going to have SEO benefits as well. Okay, mistake number 10 that I see is not thinking about your audience when you design your brand. I recently was onboarding one of my branding clients that I'm working with in August, and we had an interesting conversation about how what she wants for her design and for her branding is not necessarily what her audience wants. 
Now, first of all, that is just incredible insight for her to recognize that and to know that, but it really brings up an interesting point for me, which is I think a lot of people get stuck on wanting something that they like for their branding. Now, obviously, you can't have branding that you don't like. That's going to make it something that you're not proud of, and you have to be proud of what you're putting out there. That's one of the biggest reasons that people end up coming to me and working with me for either branding or custom website design is they're just no longer proud of what they're putting out there. So if that's you, please get in touch and let's chat about how we can work together and how we can really take care of that issue because there is really nothing worse than not being proud of the content that you're putting out there or of the website that your content lives on. But back to the idea of making sure that you're thinking about your audience when you design your brand. I have so many examples of different bloggers who have made strategic decisions with their websites that wouldn't be the way that they would want to browse content or would need to browse content, but because it's something their audience has asked for, they have made that choice to include it in their website design. So if you don't know your audience well, You can't make those strategic decisions. I've talked about this many times in the podcast before, but you really need to know who you're speaking to. You need to know what they're struggling with and you need to understand them on such a deep level that you can infer the way that they're gonna need your content displayed. If you only know that they like to shop at Target or maybe they're a mom with young kids, that isn't going to tell you anything and it isn't going to help you truly know what they need from you. So if you haven't done that work to figure out who your audience is, I would highly encourage you to check out the other episodes that I have about building your audience and connecting with them. Check out the freebie I have about how you can survey your audience and the types of questions that you should ask them. This is really going to be important before you can make any good decisions for your branding or for your website design. And it doesn't matter whether you're working with someone like me to help you do this or if you're doing it yourself, you need to know who your audience is. You need to know where they're starting at so that you can help them to that next level and to the final level of their journey with you as kind of their guide in helping them deal with the struggle that they're having. But when you just make decisions for your blog that reflect things that you like or things that you would want. It really is doing your audience a disservice and I can almost guarantee that you're going to be back at the starting board in six months. Again, you have to be proud of what you're putting out there and you definitely have to like it. So there is a balance there. It's figuring out what your audience likes and figuring out what you like and then where you can meet in the middle. But when you're just thinking about only what you like or only what makes sense to you or Worse yet, only what you see someone else doing on their blog, you're really missing that opportunity to step up as the expert for your audience and to really provide them a unique experience on your website. Okay, we made it. We made it through 10 website mistakes that I most commonly see. I didn't know that that was going to be as fiery as it ended up being, but as I was writing this and outlining it, I realized that so many of these are such common mistakes and some of them have such easy solutions. So I would really just look at this list, head to the blog post to read it over again or check out the show notes, but just really figure out which one of these 10 or which couple of these 10 you really need to focus on first. I know that as a food blogger, your list of to-dos never ends. It is always growing. So don't feel like you need to do all of these things. But if one of these things stood out as you were listening to me explain it, then make that your first priority. Add it on your calendar, add it to Trello, whatever you use to manage your tasks. Make sure that you just take action on that one thing. If there's been a couple of things that you've heard, then write those down and make a plan for them. Some of these might require some research. You may have to figure out what the best platform is for you, which backup service to use, or how you're going to switch from Square space to WordPress. Whatever the next step is for yourself, just make sure to write that down and be sure to take action on it. 
I don't want you to listen to this episode with so many mistakes that you could potentially be making and not make a plan to fix them. On the other hand, maybe you don't have any of these mistakes. That is totally awesome too. But the thing about running a food blog is that it's constantly changing and what might be a mistake that you're making now could be something that you're doing well later on and there could be a new mistake. So I think it's so important to really prioritize this type of education and really figuring out how you can better your food blog because I know so many food bloggers just focus on creating great content, which is obviously so important. But if you put a bunch of nice things into a house that is broken down, it's eventually going to fall apart. And that might sound dramatic, but I've seen websites fall apart and I don't want that to happen to you. So I hope that you will listen to these and just figure out how you're going to take action. And I can't wait to see the weight that is lifted from you when you take care of one of these small things. Figuring out how to keep your plugins updated or to back up your website, it's going to be a really freeing and secure feeling that you can have when you do this. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I would love to hear what else you're wanting to hear from me. I am busy planning the rest of this quarter and even next quarter's content as we get really close to wrapping up 2020. So I would love to hear what you want to learn for your food blog. What are you struggling with right now and what are you wanting to learn so that I can provide the best content for you and for this really to be a great resource for you to better your blog. All right, friends, that's all for today. I will talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to screenshot it and share it with a friend. You can tag me on Instagram stories at Grace and Vine. For the show notes for this episode, head to the vinepodcast.com. Talk soon.